everybody. I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. So welcome to 15 Minute Film Fanatics. This is the podcast where two friends and lifelong film watchers watch films separately and then they talk about them on the show for the first time. This week is a Dan pick. We're going to be talking about Otto Preminger's The Man with the Golden Arm. Um, that came out in 1955, uh, based upon the famous novel by Nelson Algren, which came out in 1949. Um, this is a movie that that I urged upon Mike to see. So Mike, what's your first reaction? Frank Sinatra is such an underrated actor. I don't know why, you know, he he made a number of films, including The Manchurian Candidate as well. I don't know what your take is, but I, I thought that he was quite a good actor. And he he's not out of place. We've all seen other stars uh, step into the movies. And that was a gimmick of the movies for a long time to try people out who were successful in other arenas in the movies. Uh, but Frank Sinatra is just a natural. Um, he doesn't stand out as not an actor. He's right there, say, with with Kim Novak, you know, as his as his girlfriend on the side. Um, he's right in there with the scenes with um, the actress that plays Zosh, his wife, sure. uh, which are which are all fantastic. And those are my really my favorite parts of the movie. Yeah, no, he's terrific. And, you know, as you may not know this, but he was not the first choice. When I was watching it again for the podcast, I thought, you know, I bet you they wanted John Garfield or somebody like, and sure enough, they did. He was not the first choice. I think he's he's boyish and charming, but still has a hard edge to him. I mean, he was 39 or 40 when this film was made. Um, and let's also, in a movie of great performances, let's not forget about who plays Louis, the, the dealer. You recognize that, right? No. Darren McGavin, the father from A Christmas Story. Oh, man. So no, that was... I, I actually didn't pick up on that. <laughs> well, that's because he's so good in this film. So I agree with you. I think it's I think it's a great film to showcase Sinatra's talent as an actor, but it's also a great movie like some other ones we've done on the podcast. It reminded me very much of Seconds. It reminded me much of um, Crouching Tiger with the character of Jen. You know, it's about somebody who wants to reinvent himself. He tells that guy Sparrow, the guy whose job it is to, to steal the dogs, he says, the monkey's gone. And it's it's a great, great film about uh, somebody trying to make up a new new identity for himself. I would have thought of Sweet Smell of Success if you asked me what, which movie we did before uh, that it, that it reminds me of. And it's quite it's quite close in visual style uh, as well. There's they come from the same period. Uh, and there's just some there's something extremely stylized about the use of black and white, about shadows and and darkness. This is this is a noir with no guns. Yeah, that's very well said. And but of course, one different between this and Sweet Smell is that Sweet Smell is filmed. You know, there's a lot of it. You get this. You get the city on camera and here it all looks like Sesame Street. I mean, it deliberately looks like a stage set where all these characters interact. You said on one of the other podcasts we did, uh, you talked about the, the set pieces of the Honeymooners and that's what their apartment reminded me of. Yeah, very much so, very much so. So I think it's an unbelievable portrayal by Sinatra. And when I was thinking about the show today and knowing we, we were gonna record, I thought about something and I, and I looked it up to get the exact language, but um, in 1991, Jerry Garcia was interviewed by Rolling Stone and, and he was asked about his drug use, right? And here's what he said. I just thought this was an interesting quotation in, in, in connection with this film. He said, if drugs are making your decisions for you, they're no good. I can say that unequivocally, if you're far enough into whatever your drug of choice is, then you are a slave to the drug and the drug isn't doing you any good. That's not a good space to be in. And I think that this movie does a very good job of showing that space that, that Frankie Machine is in. Yeah, absolutely. I'll get into this in, in a second in my moment, but I, I think that part of uh, the patina of drug use is is creativity, is is music, and it's not it's not by accident that they choose that that he wants to play the drums and wants to express himself that way, and that that the lifestyle that he's leading more than anything else is getting in the way, but it comes along as just part of an entire package with the drugs. All right, so in part two, we'll talk about our moments. 
Okay, so welcome back. You know, in part two, we like to talk about key scenes, big moments of the film that are indicative of its themes as a whole. Uh, Dan, I think yours is before mine. My moment is Shakespearean. So you gotta, you gotta indulge me a little bit to set this up. There's a scene in Othello that people call the seduction scene. That's like the shorthand for that scene. And that's the scene where Iago convinces Othello that Desdemona is unfaithful. But he doesn't, that's shorthand for that. What he really convinces him is that the world is a different place than Othello thinks it is. And he does it beautifully. It's a scene that's widely studied. It's showcased everywhere as an example of Shakespeare's talent. It's brilliantly done. So I think there's a moment like that in this film. And it's a moment about an hour into it where Louis rehooks him, where Louis gets Sinatra, or Frankie Machine that is, back, back on the junk. So let me just give you the context of this because I think that Louis operates in very much like Iago does. So Sinatra goes to the bar, um, the character Swiftka comes up on one side, Louis comes up on the other side, they're like the devil and the angel, right? And Swiftka um, says to Frankie, you're a miserable piece of humanity, because he doesn't want to deal. He's out of that. He doesn't want to deal in the big game. Sinatra says, yeah, leave me alone, leave me alone. And, and Louis starts to stick up for Sinatra. So Sinatra thinks he has an ally there. And then Louis says, well, you can't blame him for letting the best dealer in the business get away from him. And Sinatra looks at Louis and smiles and goes, oh, it's the old squeeze play, right? Louis wants Sinatra to think he sees through him, but of course that's all part of Louis's design. So now Sinatra thinks I'm as smart as Louis is, but of course he 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 can't keep up with him the same way that Othello, in his innocence, can't keep up with Iago. So Sinatra gives in. He says, "Okay, I'll deal for one night, so I can pay for the medical bills." But that's when the seduction scene really starts. Sinatra thinks the seduction scene is over, but for Louis it's just starting. So Louis says, "You really serious about this musician job? Do you have a shot?" And Sinatra says, well, yeah, if they like what they hear. And Louis says, Chancy, huh? He's already trying to convince him that it's impossible for, for a guy like him to get this job. And then he says, so what are we waiting for? Let's, you know, let's go across the street and get a fix. And Frankie says, don't even talk about it. Don't even talk about it. And then Louis says, I know, I know. And then he does this thing where he feigns self-disclosure by, as you remember, he tells him a story. I used to be crazy for candy. And he tells him the whole candy story. Um, when I went to the army, I had to give up candy. Sinatra still thinks he's on equal footing. Sinatra says, oh, my gums bleed for you. So Louis got to press it a little further, right? He keeps letting Sinatra think he's the one in charge and he's not. And, and then he says, well, you know, when I gave up candy, there's this unfinished feeling I had all the time. And he looks at Sinatra and says, I don't have to tell you. And he says, you know, it's like you got this one thing on your mind all the time. You can't stop thinking about it. And Sinatra desperately, he says, oh, you're just a mine of information, aren't you? But the viewer can see that Sinatra is losing and Louis getting stronger and stronger. So Louis says, do you remember what Louis says he did? No. He says, I said to myself, and of course this story's all made up, I assume. Louis says, I'll start tomorrow and tonight I'll eat all the candy I can hold. I put $18.23 worth of candy in, in, my, in my room and I went up there and I ate the whole thing. And, and ever since then, when I feel like having candy, I say to myself, well, brother, you know, you want some candy? Well, you had some candy, you had it good. You know what I mean? And they never make eye contact. And then there's a pause and Sinatra knows the seed's been planted in his mind. He's not going to get rid of it. And he hangs his head and walks across the street to get his next fix. So just like Iago, you know, Louis insinuates friendship. He insinuates empathy. You know, I was addicted to something too. And it's like Othello because, you know, Iago doesn't just convince Othello that Desdemona is unfaithful. He convinces him that nobody's faithful in the world and that you can't judge whether or not somebody's honest. And Louis convinces Sinatra that, of course, you're addicted for life. Of, you, you can't do it. But if you can have one night with all the candy, oh, isn't that great? So Louis 
puts a version of the world on Frankie that Frankie has to come to accept there. And it, it's so beautifully done that, that, like I said, they never make eye contact. They're both looking at the camera. And I think it's Shakespearean in watching this person fall, you know, in, in, into a place that he's, that he's not going to get out of until the very end. I should have gone first. Um, so my, my moment is kind of the ramification of that, which is that he, he fails at his audition after getting his fix and then dealing all night at the game or for 36 hours or however long it is. And I, I try to imagine any other actor being on the set and they say, okay, now do your best dejected walk out of the room, but you're walking towards the camera. It just, it, it strikes me as a, the best piece of the performance for me is the way that Sinatra walks at the room, because it's not just like I failed this audition or I'm not going to drum. He has to tell the viewer with the, his entire body posture that this guy is never going to touch a drum set again. And I think that that's beautifully conveyed, but it's not mawkish. Uh, and, and the, the best thing about that right over his shoulder is he goes to the next guy and he says, all right, pick him up and meaning the sticks and the, and the music goes on without him. And I, I just think that that's a beautifully composed scene, but it would be so easy to be melodramatic or to get wrong. Yeah. And I wonder how much of that, that's a great point, Mike, because I wonder how much of that when we watch Sinatra's body language, like we're putting on him because we're invested in him. We want him so badly to be successful. We're, we we, we want to be proud of him. And then when he fails, our emotions, I think, color the way, I mean, he could have walked out of that room in a bunch of different ways. Maybe we would read into that walk what we're feeling for him. Does that make sense? Yes. The, the performance is very understated. It's very beautiful. It's not what you would expect, again, from a guy who is this big showman is one of the most famous people in America than, than being in, in a movie. That's it's the subtlety of using his body to convey emotion, just the way that you would do certain things with your voice to convey emotion. It's, it's a brilliant moment. Absolutely. Okay. I'll see you in part three. So welcome back in part three. We like to talk about the title or the ending or our big takeaways from the film. So Mike, what do you make of the ending or the title or what's your big takeaway? Okay. One of the gimmicks that I like about this movie is that um, it would it would I'm not sure it would draw in as many viewers until they find out that Zosh has been faking it uh, all the time that she that she actually can't stand up. That's, of course, the the gimmick of the film. And then, you know, she's killed a guy and he's going to take the heat for it. So it's it becomes the whole movie has been the two of them sitting there and it's either him or her. You know, they they both kind of have half of a life while they're together. And that's why, you know, I think that the viewer is kind of okay if he abandons her and runs off with, with Kim Novak um, because that they have a, a somewhat parasitic relationship with, with one another. She, she has to pretend to be handicapped and he's got to pretend that, that he's in love with her or he's giving her some kind of due affection, but it's not love. We know that yeah. it's not what, what he's capable of. Um, and her neediness is not love either, that she's, she's doing it also, you know, to keep him off the junk, but to, but to control him. Correct. Yeah. He's the host in that relationship. She's the parasite and he's the host. The ending of this reminds me of what you said in the last segment about, about Sinatra's dejected walk and the scene where he does the, um, you know, the, that detox scene where she like, now, of course, that is that, is that, that is a complete movie detox scene from everything I've read. Um, I recently read the uh, autobiography of Keith Richards, so I can tell you that it's a, it's a little different as portrayed in there, but it's certainly a great example of, again, Sinatra using his body because that whole scene is like a ballet the ballet of the detox scene there. Um, the novel ends in a different way. And I want to spring this on you and get your reaction to this. In the novel, um, he beats your he beats his addiction, but the authorities learn where he's hiding for the murder he didn't do. He escapes, he gets shot, he leaves Molly, 
he flees to a flop house and he hangs himself. So that's how the novel ends. Now in this film, other people have to die. You know, Zosh has to die for him to, to him to move on and to, to leave that movie set. But it's interesting choice, isn't it? About how, how the film ends versus, because Ben Hecht was involved with this screenplay. It's interesting how the adaptation worked. Yeah, I, I um, never regretted not reading that novel and I regret it even less now. I think one of the one of the things that's happening here is that in some ways that the ending is the weakest part of this film. It's like the ending of a of of a of a who done it, but that does not hang its attention. It doesn't hang uh, its tension on the on the who done it. And so the the unraveling of that plot is not the most interesting part. The the moral fight, the ways in the ways in which your past life creeps up on you the way that you certainly can go home again. And this proves that you can go home again uh, is, is part of the story. You know, the, the big reveal is jaw dropping uh, and it's fun to watch. Uh, but it's, it's like the, you know, last three minutes or something of Antigone, you know, it's, it's not the most pleasant to watch and it's certainly not at the most tense. Thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you enjoyed our conversation about the man with the golden arm. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, look us up at 15MINFILM. You can write to us at 15MinuteFilm, that's spelled out, 15MinuteFilm, at gmail.com. And if you're so inclined, you can Venmo us at 15MinuteFilm on Venmo. If you want to drop us a buck or two and let us know what movies you'd like to to, um, cover in the future, that would be great. Any proceeds go right back into the show to get us new equipment. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next time.